Welcome to the Top Order Podcast, Bordy's Cricketing Labour of Love, which is episode 9 of the Cricketing Hall of Fame, counting down numbers 65 to 61. Not surprisingly, not a Kiwi amongst this week's crop, but we have got participants from five different nations coming to you after the swish. Stay tuned. Bordy, over to you for number one this week. Evening again, chaps. Episode 9 of the Hall of Fame. Five new cricketers to discuss in the second tier of the Hall of Fame. We start with tier number two and with a cricketer from yesteryear. So WG Grace is the 65th cricketer on the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame. And a little bit of controversy because he only played 22 test matches at the end of his career at the very beginning of test cricket. 1,098 runs for the doctor at an average of 32.29, a higher score of 170, one of just two test centuries in his career. He also took nine wickets at an average of 26, which compares favourably to his 2,809 first-class wickets at an average of 18 and a strike rate of 44. By the by, that goes along with 54,211 runs in 870 first-class matches at an average of 39.45 and a lazy 124 first-class centuries. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll start, Baldy, on the, the cross-examination here, which I think this may turn into. Um, so it's hard to go back and do the eye test with someone like uh, WG Grace. There's, there's not much footage. Binksy's the only one of this uh, podcast that's actually seen him play. But <laughs> this is the Test Cricket Hall of Fame. It's not the first-class cricket mm. Hall of Fame. So you're going to have to do a little bit to convince me that uh, these numbers are worthy of the people you've left out. <laughs> yeah, if it was just on numbers, if it was only on numbers and you put them into no kind of context whatsoever, a thousand runs, an average of 30, 200s, not worthy of any country's top 10 or 11 cricketers, let alone the 100 best cricketers of all time. I've picked 99 guys based on stats. I've picked one guy based on legend, and that's WG Grace. Look, we need to put his record into perspective. I'm just going to have a look at, and I'll share with you guys, visitors, uh, listeners won't be able to see this, but I do have a graph of the average of test cricketers from the inception of test cricket in the kind of 1870s through to the first, uh, first World War and into the Second World War. And if we freeze it there, we can see that there are a number of players prior to World War One who've completed their career, and they all average under 40, with the exception of the Honourable F.S. Jackson for England. So prior to World War One, an average of 30 is pretty good, really, really quite good. It's only when we get post-World War One and prior to World War Two that test cricketing averages go up, and we start to see guys like Sutcliffe and Hammond and Headley and Hutton and Painter and Ryder and Ponsford, etc., etc., up at that pointy end of the list. And in fact, when you get into the beginning of 1935 through to 36, 37, 38, there are guys who have finished their test career or thereabouts that are averaging 50, 60. So between 1910, when um, when a lot of these guys started retiring prior to World War One, and 1940, there is a big difference in terms of the average of those test cricketers. So you have to put WG Grace's average into the perspective of all of those other players. Remember, it wasn't until like the late 1890s, early 1900s that we had mechanical lawnmowers. So not only did we have uncovered pitches, but we had pitches that were mowed by hand, you know, outfields that were mowed by hand. It's a very, very different 
era of test cricket. This guy's the hardest guy to compare statistically to the others because one, there's no sample size to work with, and two, the samples that you've got are so few and far between and so different to the rest of the population of test cricketing data that it's very, very hard to compare them. If you just look at his stats, no, he doesn't qualify, but I've picked 99 guys based on stats and I've picked one guy based on his legendary status in the history of test cricket, and that's WG Grace. And, and Baldy, I, I love that. I uh, I think I've made it clear on, on previous podcasts of this Hall of Fame that I, I think the legacy should should count for a lot. I am stunned that, that you found it uh, with your stats. Stats lean found it uh, possible to get him on. But I mean, you know, we've, I, I think as even when I was a, a very young cricket fan, you knew that picture of him standing there with the pot belly and the massive beard. And you heard the stories about him putting the bales back on. He just seemed bigger than the game. And, and I honestly did assume that he was Bradman-like in his dominance of his era, but it obviously isn't necessarily the case with the stats. But there's there's something that uh, sort of got my interest from reading uh, your article, and that was more around the money side of things. Because in your write-up, you talk about how the professional players of today sort of owe some level of debt to WG for, for how he elevated the game and how he elevated himself as a product. It, it, I mean... The research that I did, it sounds like he was one of the most famous people in the world at the time. Absolutely. In Victorian England, he was one of the most famous people in the country. There were very, very few people more recognisable and who could draw a crowd. No one could draw a cricket crowd like WG Grace. So when he played, grounds would have signs on the ground that says, gate, you know, admission price, six pence. If Grace plays, one shilling. He would literally double the admin price of anyone who went to that ground to watch him play. Um, He was an amateur, so he was afforded an amateur status, which allowed him to play for the MCC, and he was allowed to play for the the gentleman in the famous gentleman versus players games of that era. He did make a lot of money from playing cricket. He was paid expenses. He was paid travel. He was also paid a number of testimonial games where he raked in a very, very handsome sum. I don't have the exact values in today's money, but according to Wikipedia, two testimonials that he had played during the end of his career earned him the equivalent of £1.25 million pounds in 2019 value. So he earned a lot of money in the back end of his career. Of course, he had to pay locum tenants because he was a doctor, so he had to pay for someone to mind his practice, but he also made a healthy amount of money uh, from playing cricket. And a lot of the professionals of this era owe it to players like Grace, who was able to enhance the reputation for the game in Victorian England. He popularized cricket before test cricket was even a thing. People came to see him play, first and simple. He was a massive drawcard, as much for his larger-than-life persona as his incredible on-field exploits. You touched on putting the bales back on. You know, as he famously said himself, people came to see me play, not you, son. And that was the reason why he got away with some of the, what Wisden have called sharp practice, which is effectively ultra-professional attitude to cricket in an era where being gentlemanly and having gentlemanly conduct was as po- as important a part of playing cricket as the result at the end of the day. Baldy, look, a, a thrilling um, write-up on WG Grace, um, which will be on the website, I'm sure, pretty shortly. So go and take um, a look at that. Um, I certainly just recall the fact that the pride I felt when I went through the Grace Gates for the first time at, at Lords, and um, as a member get afforded that privilege every time that you go. So you certainly know about the legacy um, of the man. Let's move on to number 64 on the list. Where are we going next? 
Oh, back to my home country and back to leg spinning all-rounders. 64 on the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame is a personal hero of mine. It's Richie Benno. I'll just bring his stats up here. 63 tests for Australia, 2,201 runs at an average of 24.45 with three hundreds. He also took 248 test wickets at an average of 27.03 and a strike rate of 77. He had one 10-wicket haul in his career and 16 five-wicket hauls as well. Richie Benno, not just a great cricketer, but a great cricket personality. And we talked about WG Grace probably in the pre-war era being the preeminent personality in cricket. And I think in the post-war era, Richie Benno is certainly one of the preeminent personalities, both as a player and then as an incredibly important part in the rise of World Series cricket, Packers World Series cricket. And then from the 1960s through to his retirement uh, only a few years ago as a commentator in over 500 test matches. Man, uh, when I when I was doing a bit of research on on Richie and and uh, even just thinking about him, I really miss him. Like I just miss his voice, and like he really was and or is still I, for me. Uh, and and I think people of our generation, the voice of cricket. And, and every time I sort of watch highlights from back in the day, and he's commentating, and you don't know that he's going to be commentating, and he comes on, it, it just brings. A massive smile to my face and you know it, I think that goes to show of of the impact that he had and I think probably yeah people of our era will know that but I don't know a lot about him as a as a player can you tell us a bit about him you know and his status I guess in Australia on the field Baldy? Yeah, he made his debut very, very early. So 1951-52, I think, as a 21-year-old and wasn't immediately a test success. It took him until not, sort of 1957, really, in a tour to South Africa for him to find his feet as an international cricketer and to put all of those performances together on the field. Little backstory, in 1953, Bill O'Reilly gave Richie Benno some advice and he said basically to go away and just work on your stock ball, work on a fiercely spun leg break until you can do it in your sleep, you can do it with an sort of immaculate consistency. O'Reilly said it'll take you four years to do that. He said that in 1953. Four years later, he goes to South Africa and tears South Africa apart. And he goes on a run of series against South Africa, then in England, in Australia, Pakistan in Pakistan, India in India, and then the West Indies tour in 1960-61, where he averaged under 22 in all of those series. And in fact, from that 1957 South Africa series onwards, Australia didn't lose another test series, either with Benno as a player or as captain. So it took him about four years to find his feet in international cricket, but once he really re- arrived, he was a, a massively important force for Australia as one of the key all-rounders alongside Alan Davidson, who we've already talked about on the Hall of Fame. So, Mike, I've got a question around how you've classed him in, in the Hall of Fame here. Have, have you classed him as a all-rounder? So when I went back and had a look at, uh, you know, a recent spinner, I think I used Harath as sort of a, a benchmark here to see where, where Benard sat. The the numbers are probably leaning towards Harath when it comes from a bowling perspective, mm. but how much how much of an effect does the batting have here? I guess, have you classed him as an all-rounder, firstly, and... How much of a bump does that give him against another another spin bowler? Because that's how I saw him. I didn't really uh, factor in his Yeah, batting. I classed him as an all-rounder because of the way that he batted. And he batted with attacking flair and real intent to score fast. And that was one of his mantras both 
as a cricketer and as a captain in that he wanted to play attractive cricket. He wanted to score fast. Uh, his his um, mantra from Australian batting point of view when he was captain is he wanted to score 400 in a day. So if they batted first in a test match, their, their goal, and it was eight ball overs then, so it was a slightly different um, number of balls faced in the day, but they wanted to score 400 in a day and then bowl the opposition out as quickly as possible. So I classed him as an all-rounder. He is a bowling all-rounder rather than a batting all-rounder, but he still averaged 24 with the bat, which in that era was pretty good for a bowling all-rounder. And certainly his um, plus-minus is minus 2.5 because he's got a bowling average of 27 and a batting average of about 24.5, which even my maths would tell me that that's about 2.5. Um, but I certainly classified him as a bowling all-rounder for Australia, that's for sure. Baldy, we, we touched upon it at the top of his write-up. In taking into account all of these players that we were talking about, we're on episode nine now. Have you factored in their wider impact mm. on the game? If we talk about, you know, whether it's as a captain, whether it's as a coach or an administrator, or in Benno's case, yep. a, a journalist who actually stayed on after that 1956 Ashes tour in England to train as a journalist with the News of the World, um, so that he had a career to go to after. Um, after cricket, ended up doing police reports, I, I believe, in his his first job. He, he couldn't quite get onto the sports desk to start with. But have you factored in his impact on the game from a, a commentary perspective? What a decision that was in 56 to stay on and do a bit of journalistic training and media training in England after that Ashes series. I mean, that is possibly the single best non-cricketing decision that has been made since the Second World War because it, it, it enabled Richie Benno to become the greatest commentator on cricket that has ever lived. And yes, absolutely, his legacy extends far beyond his playing days. He won a lot of tests as captain. He had a three, I think he had a three to one win to loss ratio as captain. And I think there's only three or four captains that have a better win to loss ratio than Benno. I think um, Viv Richards is one, uh, Steve Waugh, Mike Brearley, the other two. And his loss percentage, 14.2% uh, um, tests lost only trails Mike Smith and Brearley as as captaincy goes so Richie Benno played winning cricket he was an attacking entertaining player but his his legacy in, in cricket is it far extends just the the time that he spent on the field it's those 500 test matches that we watched him um or sorry that we watched listening to him in our living rooms and he brought joy to our hearts like you Stuart I miss Richie Benno there are very few cricketers that I would say that about but I really really miss not having him in my life and in in my living room as part of as part of the summer of cricket body fitting tribute to look a guy that i grew up with as well obviously was on the bbc for for a long long time before moving across to channel four and then obviously um, those ashes series away from home on channel nine as well who's next on the list moving across the indian ocean from australia to south africa and from bowling all-rounders to fast bowlers, we're going to move to Vernon Philander, and I'm just bringing up his stats here now, and they're really underrated. So 64 tests for South Africa. He took 224 wickets at an average of 22.32 and a strike rate of 50.8, and that's just absolutely incredible. So if you compare that to Makaya Antini, his, Makaya Antini's average was 28, Philander's was 22, Strike rate 53, Vernon Philander's strike rate 50.8. Two 10-wicket hauls in his career, 13 five-wicket hauls in his career. But after seven test series, he was one of the greatest fast bowlers of all time. He was, you know, far, not if not the fastest, but close to the fastest, to 100 wickets, to 200 wickets, all of that kind of stuff. He was, you know, his the first half of his career was simply lights out as far as fast bowling was concerned. 
Yeah, when I when I think about Philander, I just I have horrible memories to be honest. I mean, he was he was part of the the destruction for New Zealand's the really our low point in um, in recent times, our, our rock bottom, I guess that we've kind of gone you know risen from uh you know when we were all out for for 45 and i for some reason i tried to find some footage of that but thankfully it seems to all, all be deleted from the internet and i ended up just watching uh my old mate dean brownlee's 100 in the second innings uh, of that match but you know at times philander just looked unplayable he kind of had all of it didn't he? he had the swing he had seam he had control he had craft he was not express pace but he was kind of just quick enough and yeah, I mean, the one of the footages, one of the the videos that I watched, Baldy, uh, of him just destroying Australia for eighty five at, at Hobart, which I actually kind of ne- didn't have any memory of, and funnily enough, it, it nipped through the gate of someone called Joe Many, who I just have no memory of at all. Baldy, can can you remember that man? I think South Australian fast bowler from memory, Joe Many. Uh, but like you, I have nightmares about. Um, Vernon Philander, and I'm sure many top-order cricketers have absolute nightmares. Those first 10 test series, he averaged under 20 with the ball, and he was just incredible. Didn't do a lot with the ball, but did just enough. He reminded me a lot of McGrath, but a slightly different kind of build, slightly different kind of approach to the crease. But the way that he moved the ball just about half a bat with, just enough to catch the edge. He didn't beat the bat very often, but he found the edge very, very regularly for South Africa in, as you say, a really, really good pace attack in that era. Baldy, off air, we talked a little bit about his stats and where they ranked against other players. So I think you said he's top 15 in terms of a number of his stats. Doesn't maybe have the 10 wicket mm. hauls of someone else. Um, is he a little bit low on the list on that basis? And and just to pick up on Lippy's point, I think around um, his style, nicknamed the surgeon um, because of his ability to, um, I guess, examine a batsman's technique. And we talked about his average at home as well, 19 points at home um, with, you know, a pretty soft ball in in, uh, in South Africa once that kookaburra gets a bit of hardness out of it in the, um, in the heat there. But yeah, is he a little bit low based on some of those pretty much... Uh, um, outstanding stats, really. Yeah, outstanding stats. The average and the strike rate are really good. But if you have a look at the fast bowlers of in eras where they they are playing with other fast bowlers, their average and their strike rate definitely benefits. You have a look at the great West Indian fast bowlers, we see the same thing. But the number of 10-wicket and 5-wicket hauls is down a bit. So he only had two 10-wicket hauls in his career. That ranks 44th, same as a guy like Michael Holding. He had the same number of 10-wicket hauls in his career. Alan Davidson, the same. So those kinds of guys that play with other quality, high-quality fast bowlers will benefit. Good average, good strike rate. Not as many wickets, so 224 wickets, I think, ranks 63rd in terms of the bowlers that made the cut or the, or the qualifying marks for the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame. So doesn't quite have that high number of wickets in his career, but certainly his strike rate and his average are first class. So Bordy, definitely one of the underrated heroes of that South African um, pace attack at a time where uh, I guess Dale Stain was was part of that uh, alongside um, some others as well. We're going to move on to another bowler who made a way in the media as well, a little bit like one of our earlier participants, Richie Benno. Who are we coming to um, next? Hard to separate these two, Vernon Philander and the number 62 
on our Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame. It is Michael Holding of the West Indies. 60 tests for Michael Holding, 249 wickets in just those 60 tests at an average of 23.68. And a strike rate very similar to Vernon Philander's 50.9. He too had 10, uh, two 10-wicket 10 matches in his career and 13 five-wicket hauls as well. And he made 910 runs at an average of seven. But we won't worry about Michael Holding's batting. It is the bowling that we are talking about today and possibly the greatest nickname ever bestowed on a sportsman of all time. Michael Holding was whispering death. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time watching the the highlights of uh, Michael Holding on YouTube today and and my ribs are still sore (laughs) from having watched them. There's something about watching all of those West Indian fast bowlers from the late 70s and early 80s which just filled me with fear and they're 50 years ago. But... um, Look, I don't really have much more to say about him apart from that he would have scared the the living daylights out of me if I faced him. But one interesting stat that I found, which I like to find on every every one of these players, is that he actually holds the uh, one in one day cricket holds the highest tenth wicket partnership, uh, batting with Viv Richards. I'm not sure if you guys remember that game where it was one of those 55 uh, 55 over one dayers, Viv Richards and Viv Richards and Michael Holding put on a hundred. 106 runs, I believe, uh, partnership for the 10th wicket. Uh, Michael Holding had about 12 of those runs. So um, that would have been a great day to watch some batting from Viv Richards, I believe. I'll just jump in to say, echo every single point that you just made there, Raj, about how frightening it was. And, and it's scary to think that someone like him and, and I guess that whole attack played at a time when people weren't wearing helmets. It's uh, like, you know, you watch some of that footage and, and Binksy, I mean, should throw to you, he did some terrible, scary things to, to some of those English uh, attack after um, after Tony Gregg's uh, rather uh, un, ill-advised. Uh, un, uh, un, ill-advised comments, really. Uh, you know, one I think one ball to Brian Close there just, missed, just misses his face and would have made a, a serious, serious mess. Yeah, I mean, look, I guess that's the area that they played in and Close, I think, was uh, famously brought back into the side. I think he was 41 years old and just took a, a number of what you would see now. Would You know, it would have got stopped on points um, in, in a boxing parlance. He was just wearing the ball left, right and centre um, in that test match. Um, but I think from an international perspective, we talk about that ovary bowl to Jeff Boycott. I think that was at the Oval um, in the early 1980s. That's certainly um, available on YouTube. And, and like Raj said, you kind of get scared um, watching that. I'd just say as well, uh, spare a thought for a number of county professionals um, around the, the English county game. He played famously for, for Derbyshire and, and Lancashire. I think he actually had a stint in Australia as well, uh, Baldy, maybe for uh, for Tasmania. But c- can you imagine a, you know, a, a particularly um, cold day somewhere in April um, going up to Derbyshire and um, and as an opening batter, finding Michael Holding at the top of his mark, um, Jeff Boycott, you know, was paid to do that in Test cricket. I wouldn't have fancied that as a lower order player in the in the county game. Um, yeah, I would have been running for sweaters and shin pads, and um, look probably a, a sick note to be honest to get out of batting on that particular day. Yeah, I think there would be a few first class cricketers in the seventies and eighties era that would have put a, pulled a calf muscle if they were due to play Michael Holding. I would imagine. The, the guy on and off the field has been an absolute superstar for the West Indies. Let's not also forget 
his contribution to the world of cricket commentary, both in Australia and England and around the world, really. Uh, Michael Holding is another one of the few commentary voices that I will miss now that I think he has officially retired uh, from being a commentator at the end of this sort of 2020-2021 season. Um, I, I will also miss his voice in the commentary box. He's one of those guys who wasn't afraid to be forthright with his views, but he wasn't matey with the players. So he was able to kind of balance that former test player, but still being able to be critical of a player when it was due, but also be fulsome in his praise when it was deserving. So he is another guy that I will miss in the commentary box and an absolute legend of West Indies bowling. Baldy, we come to the end of episode nine of the Hall of Fame and another bowler with a pretty impressive record. Where are we going next? From the West Indies to India and a player who played 132 tests for India and took, and you'll guess who it is after I say this, 619 wickets at a bowling average of 29.65. Strike rate of 65.9, 8, 10-wicket hauls, 35 5-wicket hauls in his career. We are, of course, talking about leg-spinning sensation Anil Kumble. Those 132 tests and 619 wickets, man, that's, that's a lot of wickets, even for a bowler in the subcontinent. 619 wickets and, and he, you know third third all time mm. why, why is he why is he down here at 61 Baldy? because I, I don't mm. you know I, I think you gave a lot of the the sort of earlier players that we had in the Hall of Fame the likes of you know Graham Gooch Alex mm. Stewart those those kind of players a heap of credit for their longevity and and you know you look at someone like Kumble to rack up that many tests to rack up that many mm. wickets and, and a leg spinner to boot. I know. And he's, and he's all the way down here. I've got, I've got two leg spinners on this week. I felt like I was doing well to get two leg spinners into a show. But you've been, har- you've been harsh on my assessment of Anil Kumble. I'll tell you why. Anil Kumble took 619 wickets in, in India in subcontinent conditions. He didn't take all of them in India, but he played a lot of his test matches in India. Still averaged 29.65 across that career, right? So his average among Hall of Fame qualifying bowlers is 84th. If you just looked at his average, 80, uh, 29 and a half, and his strike rate, 65 and a half, wouldn't qualify for the Top Order Hall of Fame. If he had 150 wickets, we wouldn't be talking about Anil Kumble. We're talking about Anil Kumble because he's got more wickets than any other Indian test bowler. But his average and his strike rate is not exceptional. When you have a look at Vernon Philander, 22, Michael Holding, 23, even Clary Grimmett, 24, Bill, Bill O'Reilly, 22, 23. They're the guys that have the great averages and the great strike rates. Anil Kumble doesn't have a great average and strike rate, even for a guy who's played in a lot of Indian conditions and conditions that would suit his bowling, you would think. However, in order to be a legend, you have to do the best that you can with the opportunities that are afforded to you. And in his 132 tests, he did take 619 wickets. So I've balanced out the fact that he is third all-time in terms of wickets taken. He has the most test wickets for India against the fact that his average and strike rate is not all that great. And I've ended up around about the 65 to 61 mark, which makes sense to me. I think he's kind of middle of the road. He's not in the same league as Warren and Murali Duran, but he's also probably a little bit better spin bowler than someone like Nathan Lyon, who sits outside the top 100. So I have a question around your the best performances uh, for a player. You know, you look at their best series, for example. Where does that sit from a points perspective? Because I've just looked back through. He actually got a 10-wicket bag mm. in Australia. Uh, I've just realised I, re- I remember that game quite vividly, not for that 12 wickets he got, but for the, the double 100 Sutchin scored in the first innings. I, I remember that very vividly. But... Um, that sort of that sort of return for for anyone going to Australia is a big thing. Does that factor into your 
Oh, look, absolutely it does. And his record uh, home and away has to factor into it as well. I mean, there are there are lots of arguments that you can make for Anil Kumble. If you have a look at his three-peak series that I've marked here, he got 23 wickets in 97-98, um, Australia in India, at an average of 18. He had 98-99. Uh, he had 21 wickets in just two test matches against Pakistan at an average of 14.5 and, and a strike rate of 27. And he had uh, 2004-5 Australia in India, four tests, 27 wickets at an average of 25. So, you know, those peak test series, Anil Kumble was an excellent performer for his country, but he didn't do it all the time. So I feel like 61 is still around about the right place for, to have him because he was excellent on occasion and he was also not as effective on occasion as well. And you have to kind of balance those out. Take the yin with the yang, the good with the bad in Anil Kumble's case. But certainly we can't underrate the fact that he lasted 132 tests in his career. That's a lot of test matches, even for a spin bowler. And he took 619 wickets along the way, which is just an outstanding performance. And, and one of the one of the great cricket moustaches of all time, early early on in his career, wore his glasses as well in those early days. Just a, a fantastic look. I mean, I, I think I want to talk a little bit about him, his sort of style as a bowler, because I think when we talked about uh, O'Reilly, we kind of talked about how someone who bowled that spin at, at a quicker pace. And, and, you know, why are there not more bowlers like him? And I think Kumble was someone that we talked about mm. who sort of was was in that discussion. And, you know, I actually think, uh, you know, when I was watching a bit of him and, and even just thinking about what he did, often those full, slightly quicker ones that he put down from this really high height, that they ended up yorking people much like a fast bowler would uh, hitting people on the toe or just, just going through and cleaning him up. So, I mean, as as a league spinner, Baldy, do you want to you know, touch a little bit on his style as a bowler? Yeah, wasn't possessed of a great turning um, leg break. He didn't rip the ball like Warren or Stuart McGill or, or any of those kind of bowlers, but he was possessed of, of tremendous height. He was well over six foot tall, um, had a really, really high arm action, almost past the perpendicular, which limited his ability to turn a big leg break, but it also made it easier for him to bowl the top spinner and a wrong one. So rather than kind of Warren, who had sort of zero degrees to 45 degrees in terms of turn, or well, it sometimes felt like that, you know, Anil Kumble was kind of 10 degrees either way of straight and could bowl any of those with equal amounts of control and variation, as you say, not only in flight, but also in pace. So those were the kinds of skills that Anil Kumble brought to the game. And his height was certainly an advantage. Um, even in India, he was able to extract uneven bounce if he was able to get extra bounce from the surface on occasion you could really pop off the shoulder of the bat and find those close in fielders but yes absolutely he was possessed of the ability to beat the guy on the inside edge as well as the outside edge of his bat he had a tremendous wrong in as well Balder you might not have this to hand but I guess just following up on on Lippy's point we talked about this a little bit in the evolution of T20 cricket that someone like Alasith Malinga who delivered the ball from a completely different angle took some figuring out in terms of the way that you would play against someone that was relatively unique in that respect mm. Cumbley I think probably had that early in his career um, and then you, you heard a lot of commentators talk about playing him like an in-swing bowler because he was a little bit quicker through the air didn't really spin the leg break as you mentioned but did get a little bit of drift and bowl that top spinner did, did batters work him out is that is that maybe a you know a sort of I guess why the average is a you know a tick higher than some of the other spinners that you've talked about was there that working out of how to play him in his career stats Great question, Adam, and thanks to the pausing and resuming of recording in this podcast, I'm able to quickly do some analysis. 
started nervously, so he averaged 56 and 31 in his first two series, but then had a, a, quite a reasonable patch, actually. Averaged 29, 18, 20, 28, 17 in the next sort of four or five series. So there was a little bit of players, I think, trying to figure him out. And that often happens with a cricketer's career. You know, you burst onto the scene. People don't know a lot about you, and it takes a little while for them to work you out. So he had a couple of good... Um, periods early on in his career where he was able to have a bit of a surprise factor. He played a lot of test cricket, so there was plenty of opportunity for players to work out how to play Anil Kumble. And by the end of his career, yeah, his averages were starting to bloom out a little bit, as were his strike rates. So in his last three test series, averaged 60, 50 and 95 and had a strike rate of 147, 101 and then 197. It's fair to say that um, even if those two series, two out of those three were in the subcontinent, in fact, Two out of the three were in India. The other one was in Sri Lanka. So in the back half of his career, Anil Kumble may be not as effective as he was at the beginning of his career, but that's probably as much a factor of him playing so much test cricket that Australia, that um, oppositions would start to get used to him and how to play him, as you say, maybe as a, more of an in-swing bowler than, than as a spin bowler. But teams would have to plan for Kumble because he was... He was their best spinner for a long, long time, and he was their only spinner in foreign conditions for a long, long time. So it was all on him to take those spinning wickets, and he was excellent, excellent at it. Well, Baldy, the power of your stats and preparation work uh, coming to the fore again, able to rustle those kind of stats up seemingly off the top um, of your head. Very, very impressive. Um, That is the end of this episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame, episode number nine. We will be back in your feed, of course, with episode 10 um, over the course of the next couple of weeks, as well as lots and lots more cricketing content. But for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland. We'll see you very soon. Good night.